This episode contains adult content. I speak with two women involved in the sex trade. One where it's legal. Houses of prostitution are preparing to reopen. The brothels are literally right outside the county line. The other where it's not. Police say an undercover investigation revealed that a massage therapy business was really a front for prostitution and independence. They share their stories. Some prostitutes in Kansas City only make 20 bucks a transaction. An escort trades her time for money. I should be protected legally and I should have insurance. And talk about the pitfalls and the perks. The study estimates that in Kansas City, nearly 15% of men over 18 have been customers. It's scary. It is absolutely scary. Prostitution. The act of exchanging sex for money. Within the Americas, the United States is one of the few countries where it is illegal. Although, even there, there is an exception to the rule. In certain parts of Nevada, where brothels remain a popular yet controversial tourist attraction. But in Kansas City, like most of the US, providers and their clients risk prosecution. One KC provider who for personal and legal reasons are referred to simply as Rose, recently explained to me how she became involved in this industry. I've always loved sex. And one night I was at, out having some drinks with some friends and I had just joked about it because I had always been that girl who was like, hey, we date and then they find someone new. And it was a little frustrating. And you know what? I just want to have fun. I want to explore. And I'd always joked about being a stripper then because I was a dancer, but I'm also very clumsy. Um, so I was like, man, I really want, would love to do that. Maybe I should go to Vegas. And like, no idiot. There are escorts here in Kansas City. Honestly, I was drunk and kind of went from there. And so I asked a friend of mine who I had grown up with. Um, we have both grew up in Olathe and she kind of moved on into the city. She does not do it, but she knows of people who do it. And she helped me get started. And I actually paid for her and my hotel for about four months because she had her kiddos and yeah mm -hmm. and i supported her and i from the income from mm -hmm. yep that. well i had savings from working my mm -hmm. other job so i to get me started i bought a ton of lingerie I started off in a very crappy hotel and here in kansas city and it's one that cops won't go into unless you're being obviously blunt about what you're doing it's like a whole community there so did cops know about it? Like my car had fake tags on it and they ran it and just kept going. So unless you were out in the street or the hotel, I called you because the hotel won't turn over cameras. Not unless they have to. It's it's a whole community of inappropriate crap. So like there's just a whole bunch of escorts and stuff living in this one location? I say there's escorts, drug dealers, people who, you know, they live there. Yeah, there's like a whole community of people you probably never want to be around. It's right off the highway. I don't think I left my room at all. Coming from the rich side of Kansas to right. that, it's like, these people are really smoking drugs with a deer. And I kid you not, that's not a joke. With a deer? Yes. It was out in the parking lot. Like an animal. Mm, with the horns, yes. I wish half of the stuff I could make up, but no, they were Wait. passing something around. I was like... <laughs> I... And the deer was smoking. I don't think the deer smoked, but it's like, it's like right there. But yeah, no, I didn't leave my room unless I was leaving the hotel. I didn't go venture around. 1,300 miles from Kansas City, in a liberal area of Nevada, Olivia LaRue, the self-described courtesan and madam, didn't have to run the gauntlet of the same legal issues when she decided to become involved in this industry. Well, I've always wanted to 
be a courtesan. Ever since I was a little girl, I wanted to do this type of work. I just didn't really know how to go about getting into it. I went to college and I became a chef and I did all the other stuff first. And then when I was about 30, I just started Googling it and looking it up online. And and then I literally just put up an ad one day and learned on the clock, I guess. <laughs> you said you wanted to do this since you were young. But I would imagine a lot of young kids probably wouldn't even know this industry existed. So when you say you were young, like how young were you? I remember being um, 10, 11, 12 in there in that age mm -hmm. and having feelings, sexual feelings. I couldn't put a name to it at that age. I didn't get a lot of birds and the bees talks from my parents. So I just remember having these feelings and thinking that it'd be really cool to be able to be a professional something that had to do with these sexual feelings that I was feeling. <laughs> and then when I was about 16, I saw the movie Pretty Woman and I was like, that's it. That's what I want to do. How did this career switch affect your relationships with your you know, family, friends, husband? What did everyone have to say about it? Were they supportive or was there some reluctance you know, from them to support you making this kind of move? I haven't really told a lot of my friends. My mother was dead already. My father was kind of just doing his own thing. He wasn't really keeping an eye on what I was doing. Um, my kids were really young when I decided to do this. That actually had probably the most positive effect was on the relationship between myself and my children because before I became a sex worker, I was a chef and I worked very long hours for, you know, days and days and days without a day off. And I was never home. And when I did come home, I was either too tired or it was late to really be a mother. So when I became a sex worker, I was gained all this freedom in my schedule and I was able to schedule work around when they're in school or after they go to bed or plan a trip for three days and make all the money I need for the month. Becoming a sex worker, part of the reason I decided to do it was so that I would have more time with my kids and that worked out really well and it continues to work out really well. And then uh, with my husband, it's a complex, it's pretty hard to just be like, oh, it was good, it was bad. You know, there is good and there is bad, but all in all, I would say that it had a positive effect on my relationship with my husband. Mm -hmm. So were you married at the time you decided to start work or you were married after you started this work? I've been with my husband for 20 years. And when I started this work, we had been married for five years. I guess to answer your question, I was married before I became a sex worker and I'm still married. Like I said, I've been wanting to do this since I was young. And so I talked to him about it throughout our relationship. And it was kind of always our joke that we were going to move out to Nevada and open a brothel. And then we did move out to Nevada. And then I did open up an escort service. So he wasn't really surprised. I think he was just a little shocked in the moment when I told him because I was a sex worker for like six weeks before I told him that I was doing that. I wanted to see if I liked it. You know, I didn't, I didn't want to freak him out for no reason. Finally, you know, I told him about six weeks after I started doing it and he was like, oh, okay. I'm not surprised. One thing that I think confuses a lot of people is that as we've discussed, prostitution is broadly illegal in the United States. 
However, there are escort services that seem to offer sexual services. So what is the difference between prostitution and an escort service? So a prostitute is someone who exchanges sex or sexual acts for money. If you call up an escort service and you're like, hi, I want someone to come over to do XYZ explicit sexual acts, how much is it going to cost? They're going to hang up on you because that is entrapment. So any escort anywhere that's soliciting prostitution and entrapment, nobody in their right mind is going to answer that question. Here's the fine line, and it's all about semantics. An escort trades her time for money, and what two consenting adults do in that time is up to what those two consenting adults consent to do. So you have to look at the escort's ad, and she'll give you clues as to what she will do and what she won't do. If she puts in there like FSBM, full service body massage, you can expect to have a massage with a beautiful woman who's probably scantily dressed and will probably offer you extra services. Or if she has GFE, girlfriend experience, that's like all the bells and whistles. For hobbyists, clients, customers that want a specific thing, they really kind of have to educate themselves and know how to go about navigating the communication to make sure they're going to get what they want without entrapping people or soliciting prostitution. We live in a time where politics is very divisive and on lots of issues, especially social issues, legal issues, there seems to be a kind of black and white on almost everything from abortion to criminal justice, where either you know, you're on one side of the fence or you're on the complete opposite and never the twain shall meet. But the curious thing to me is that with regard to the sex trade, I've seen people, and this obviously has been a traditional view for a lot of people, especially the religious, saying it's demeaning that the women who are involved in this are just doing this out of necessity and it's degrading for them. But on the flip side, there's this argument from some who say it's empowering for women and they can take control of the situation and explore their sexuality, and that is a positive. From your perspective, as someone working in this field, do you think that it is demeaning, or is it empowering, or can it be both somehow? The short answer is it's both. It's definitely both. It can be demeaning, it can be abusive, and it can also be empowering. It can be both those things at the same time. For me, I feel like it's very empowering, and that's what I try to tell people about. And when I have girls that I manage, women that I manage, I always tell them it's about empowerment, not exploitation. I'm not selling their bodies to make money. You know, we're empowering ourselves because what other job do women make more than men? It is a very empowering feeling to make cold, hard cash after just an hour of doing what we usually give away for free. Back in Kansas City, where the sex trade is illegal, there are many dangers facing someone like Rose. Rose, so one of the risks you face, obviously, is prosecution, because this type of work is illegal. So you have that risk. Additionally, there's a risk of disease, not just talking venereal disease, but I mean, just your proximity to people when something like COVID comes out or the flu, you're going to be so close to people and exposed to them that you have a risk of, you know, infectious illness. Another danger that unfortunately we hear about a lot is women who work in the sex trade 
being assaulted or worse by violent individuals. So as a provider, what steps are you able to take yourself to try to keep yourself safe from these various different risks that you encounter? So before anyone come, I obviously right before head to toe and scrub, everything's wiped down with bleach or vinegar. I mean, I changed the sheets. I have so many sets of sheets and that's what they're coming into. So that's how I protected myself. You know, obviously there is no unprotected sex because I do not want to be taken care of after this is done. It's scary. It is absolutely scary. But I've worked with people I've had to defend myself. I've been in bad relationships. So it's either me or you. And I prefer us to both get out of this okay, but I'm not going to be hurt anymore. I'm not going to be hurt. You're not going to kill me, basically. Yeah, there were times that I was robbed. I was robbed by another girl doing this on one of my first nights by her and her two friends. Yeah, so it sucks, but it's a learning experience. Like every job, there's the good and the bad. So you've had customers who have tried to physically harm you. I have been kicked in the back with a steel toe boot, and I have a pinched nerve to where my hands go numb a lot. They're a lot better now. But then I got celluitis because I fought back. So the dirt on his boots left um, scrapes, roses. I've had people look at me and say, well, you know, you're too fat. You're not worth it. And try to get physical. I've been accused of being a cop and then got beat up. I'm like, that makes no sense. I'm a cop. Why are you beating me up? There's not a lot of logic behind it that besides that they don't look at us as humans. We are an object there for them. Not even an object, we're just a body there for them. And that's really sad because we're not. We risk a lot doing this. And so when you have people like that, I mean, obviously you don't really know them, but from your perception, are there people who just routinely go to escorts and act like that every time? Or do you think there are people who go there and just kind of have a meltdown, freak out, get stressed out and Both. lash out at you? There is both because... Not every experience is the same. I am not the same with every person. I can be as smart as with one and then I'm very nice with the other. It is. It's a very stressful situation, especially for the gentlemen. We can know a lot more about them. We know what they're walking into. They do not. Um, so, yeah. And, of course, when you're in a bad hotel, it's, you know, it's sketchy. There are both. They will have a meltdown, freak out, and then something switches. And then there are the men who are just basically like, well, you know, you're trash. This is what you sell your body for a living. So why am I going to respect you? And you get that a lot. And you can also, you can tell by their demeanor when you've done this a few times for a little bit. And you can weed those ones out. But at the very beginning, they're just like, oh, they're making an excuse because mm-hmm. everyone's nice. No one's going to hurt me. I'm 14 and I'm nice. And that's not the case. Are you at a point where you have a customer base? of people that you can trust, or at least people you're aware of that you can trust that maybe see other customers to where you have less of those situations where some strange guy, is he going to be a psycho? Yeah. I mean, that always just plays a risk. Anyone, I could flip out at any second. I mean, that can always be a risk. And yes, um, I think I'm to the point now where my judgment of character is better and my rose glasses are off because not everyone is, this is an arrangement. You aren't going to do anything more than hurt me because that's dumb always go with your gut instinct there's been a few times i haven't i've been hurt and once you're verified you can use a girl as a reference and so when a gentleman sees a girl he can go see another girl like hey i have seen so-and-so and she's verified with good reviews and you know she's reputable 
we can text each other and say, hey, have you seen, you know, will you see him again? Yes or no. And they tell us why. Violence is something Olivia has also suffered out in Nevada. It's definitely a dangerous line of work, especially if the provider is living in a place of desperation where she feels like she needs to make money right now for whatever reason, and she needs a fast buck. And so that having that mindset is going to put us into dangerous situations because we're not going to do the due diligence that we need to do to screen our clients. So I screen all my clients. Some providers are super duper strict about their screening and some providers have like little to no screening. And so it's a very personal choice. And I've learned by doing this for so long that the longer I do it, the stricter my my screening becomes because the people that want to hurt providers will find a way to do it. So I have multiple levels of screening and at any time if I detect like a red flag, I just I say I don't want it. I'm at a privileged position to be able to do that, but not all providers are in that privileged position. And especially when we start out, we usually get into this line of work because we want to make a lot of money really quick. Um, They'll just meet with anybody anywhere and And that's when dangerous things happen and have dangerous things and violence happen to me. Yes. But more dangerous, more violent things have happened to me outside of work. I don't want to speak for everybody, but from what I've heard from other women that do this, it's the same for them. They had violence, sexual violence in their past, and that actually helped them become a better sex worker. Those experiences, how horrible they were in the moment, were learning experiences that we can draw from and become better sex workers. If we get into those situations, we know how to handle them and we can leave. For example, let's say a woman was raped outside of work, you know, in her personal life. A lot of women who have had rape or sexual violence in their past have learned to dissociate, to just kind of think about something else, leave their body while this horrible thing is happening to their body, they're somewhere else. We learn how to do that by having horrible, violent things happen to us, traumatic things. Fast forward, now we're sex workers. I'm not saying I check out. I'm not saying people should check out when they're engaging in intimate activities with somebody. I'm just saying that sometimes it comes in handy to be able to check out Right. And I learned how to do that from having past traumatic experiences. And I've learned that lots of women have the same. And talking of clients, do you ever get strange or peculiar requests from clients or prospective clients that you're just not comfortable with? I had a client ask me to pretend to be his 13-year-old niece. That was a little weird. And he wanted to video it all. And obviously, I don't look 13, so... I've had clients that want me to pretend they're the woman and I'm the man, role reversal stuff. And at first that seemed pretty weird, but now I've noticed that it's actually kind of quote unquote normal. You know, it comes up often enough that I'm like, oh, that's not really weird. It's kind of kinky, I guess. Oh, I've had clients that want to wear diapers and pretend they're a baby. 
I had a client that wanted to have a threesome with me and his dad. You said he wanted, but... I navigated that situation. <laughs> right. So in Kansas City, I keep emphasizing the point that it is illegal, which poses a risk not just for you, but obviously for your clients. So to that point, what kind of people are your clients? It honestly depends on the girl. I am the sweet girl next door, so I tend to get older clients. Um, ages, I've taken someone's virginity, so 19 to 70. It just varies, but mine tend to be the older gentlemen, and they do everything. Honestly, I've had lawyers, doctors. I've had shop owners, teachers, counselors. I mean, I've had it all of them. You know, it's just everyday people and I don't dig into their personal lives. Mm -hmm. I just, when I verify, make sure you're not a cop and you don't have a domestic violence, you know, just like the big things of red flags, Mm -hmm. you know, and then everything's deleted. And then I have a horrible memory, which I forget. And no one is ever saved in my phone by real names. So it's always like a nickname because I nickname everything. So yeah, I mean, it all just, it varies. Like there, you get local people. I've had someone who knew my family that's someone I worked with in the schools. The person that knew your family, mm-hmm. did he make the connection? I mean, did he know that you were doing this when he went to find an escort? Or mm-hmm. was it just like he realized, oh, hey. He knew. Okay. And then he didn't tell me till the end. And it took almost everything in me not to cuss him out. And he's like, yeah, I knew you since you were younger. And I was like, and you do run into that. I had someone who worked with me in at my job. And I didn't know. I obviously didn't know him. And. They don't really tend to tell you that to the very end. And what did I say? Just like, oh, hey, remember we worked together and I secretly mm-hmm. had a crush on you or something. Yeah, and... that's it. Or um, I was also a lot bigger. So uh-huh. I don't know if they saw me and they're like, oh, you know, interest. Now I've had them like, hey, you're your family. So and so was in a band. And hey, you know, I saw you when you were younger. And we were in that kind of, they all kind of ran in a group. Right. And I'm like, but there's a ton of them, you know? Right. And I'm like, oh, that's creepy. Like, I mean, my face has not really changed. I look the same. And one right. of my family, we all resemble. To me, I think it's extremely rude. Like, you should probably disclose that right at the very beginning. Right. I mean, yeah. you must feel kind of taken advantage of if that situation comes up. It is. It's taken advantage, and I feel like it's extremely disrespectful. And what about to clients? Are they, like, mostly single people, people in relationships? Or? Uh, no, they're mostly, not, they're mostly in relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah some people mention their home life and you just kind of go along with it and maybe throw your boobs in the face. So you don't, you know, it's because it can be awkward, but most of them are, do have a family life. And I always ask, cause I get bored. I have laundry addiction. I will send pictures not for you to come see me just because I mean, I, my performance speaks for that, but I'm bored and you know, I like to get to generally know them. Mm-hmm. And so I always ask, is there a good time or a bad time to call and text and, that's always in my notes in there. So mm-hmm. I just try to be as professional and don't overstep anyone's boundaries, which mm-hmm. boundaries are hard to learn in the hobby. So I was going to ask you, I mean, have you ever had situations where you or the client feel more of a connection and how do you deal mm-hmm. with that if that occurs? I mean, I've had several connections with clients and then I had one going right in one of the websites that I got him busted. No, I didn't get you busted. You didn't clear your history, and I found out because men gossip, and it's, I'm done. I don't ever want to see you again. He went on because he got banned for that. Went on another website, and he publicly apologized, which does not ever happen. They will not ever admit they're wrong, but 
I know so many girls and I was talking, I'm like, I don't care about their personal life. That's yours as it is mine. And so when you say he got busted, like by his wife. So his wife saw mess just you mm-hmm. and so forth. Yeah. And so you just delete, you have a hobby phone right. or you delete the messages, you know, cause I can't control what goes on that side, but the connection is hard because I dated someone doing this and turns out it was who he says he was, was not who he is because I can dissociate it. It's work. Yes. It's a job, but it's a very, very personal job. Right. Like it's your body. It's, it's a connection. You have to have a connection to be fully to do it. I can do that, but also it's, it's hard. I could never put someone in that situation and expect them to. So you take it day by day and it's between you two and you have to have a strong foundation to even survive it. Like to even like think of being in a relationship with someone, either with someone like us or us being in a relationship. Because the second you put yourself out there as a sex worker, they're like, oh, well, okay, you must want to have sex right now all the time. And I love sex, but personal side of me is no, you're not going to get that right away. So right. it's hard. It really is like, are you in it to actually get to know me or you know that, you know, I'm really amazing at it. So, mm-hmm. so do you see yourself ever getting into just like steady relationship? I do not know. Well, I've never been in a very good relationship, but also it actually hit recently after I dated that person, it crushed me down to my soul. It took a lot for me to come back from that. I felt more confident doing it dating him and that's how he was actually a client which is the biggest rule you do not break so no since then i never want to feel that pain again this is the most independent i've ever been to be able to stand on my feet go out shopping just like financially this is the best i've ever i've ever done and i'm not ready to give that up because i'm not i have not hit my goal but also there's a stigmatism that when you date one i, I mean we are looked at differently than normal women who just have a high sex drive so no, I don't ever expect to be in a relationship. I accept that after that person that I am probably always going to be single, even if I'm not doing this once, because I tell everyone, if you're going to be in my life, you're going to know because it's such a sensitive topic. No one's going to want to date me after this because you're kind of tarnished and you know there's that stigmatism against them. And I'd rather be on my own and have my own peace than give up something that gave me confidence and be with someone that's not okay with it so mm-hmm. but i i can't lie there's no i mean my nail lady knows what i do uber drivers know what i do like i feel comfortable enough because i want it to be normal i'm not some crazy person running around town humping everyone it's i work out of my home and it's peaceful and it's quiet i don't even have a tv up it's usually just music i accept that i'll always be single that openness has that ever backfired on you where, you know, your Uber driver, your nail lady, somebody knows, mm-hmm. and then they've used that information against you. No, I have been outed by another provider, though. She went through a hard time, and she her and I were very, very close. And she had traumatic experience go on. And I don't know what switched, because, I mean, she knew she had my house beat. I was always at her house. She was my fair kink mom. She actually outed me to my dad. And told him, and then told my ex, who we met doing this, you know, just the most outlandish things. And then told clients that she just basically ran, tried to run my name through the dirt. Which that was the second time someone tried to run my name through the dirt. And here I am, I'm still here. And I generally care about people, and I care about people's feelings. Everyone who steps in my house, I really do care for. And it's catered to them, and you're safe here. 
I will never let anything happen. And they see that. Now, there's those few people who would love to run with those, but yeah, they, people just kind of blew it off after a while. I'm not going to say anything bad about that person. I'm going to keep smiling and mm-hmm. I'm sorry for her. That sucks and it hurt me, but you have to move on and she'll be okay. So what about your dad? You said that he found out. Well, I had to tell my dad not to go on Google and how to make your daughter not be a hoe. <laughs> he loves to Google. Him and I both have a very twisted sense of humor. He asked if I was safe and happy and that was it. And I said, yeah. He's like, okay, then we don't need to discuss it. One of the major talking points in US politics is healthcare. And for people working in this industry, operating in the shadows outside the law, accessing affordable healthcare is understandably a huge challenge. Rose, before we began recording, you had let me know that recently you had a very serious health scare. I was diagnosed, um, I don't know if I've ever told anyone, I was like stage one cerebral cancer. I struggled with endometriosis, I mean, which is a common thing for women. And it's really hard to diagnose. Um, it's very painful around that time of month. I should have had a hysterectomy years ago. It just didn't happen. I go to the doctors every six months. You know, I'm extremely cautious about my health and I know my body pretty well. So I went to this, my doctor I've had for years. And like I said, he noticed that my voice was rasping. I tend to yell. I have a very loud voice and say like something just doesn't seem right. You know, I'm bruising more and all this. And when I bend over, I'm out of breath. My iron levels. So we went down and did a sonogram and it turns out, you know, my thyroid had a few red lines, which means, you know, I was diagnosed stage one cervical cancer, which I knew that was one of the possibilities that I had an outcome before I had a hysterectomy, but it still sucks because crap, what am I going to do? I've fully gotten out of my other job. And I don't like people seeing me as sick. I'm not going to be sick. And like I said, I'm only giving myself a year to heal. Then I had just gotten started into massages. So do Massages after a hysterectomy is pretty uncomfortable in general. And then there's the radiation burn down there. So that got taken as, oh, well, are you sure it's radiation burn and not herpes? I'm positive it is not. And so there's a stigmatism with that. And then going through all of that and, um, you know, not telling everyone nor my family, it's, it made, it was a very trying time. And, there's a girl I'm extremely close to, and I owe her the world because she is the one who got me through it. Because um, there were days that I was just being emotional. I don't want to be doing this. I want to sleep. You know, because I would go to radiation three or four days a week and then Uber back, you know, back home. And so you're at the doctor's, and then your world comes crashing down, and you're going to Uber home, and then you have to act completely fine because I can't be emotional about it because that's not what we're allowed to do. We can't be emotional. We have to be the fantasy, which I think in a way kind of did help because I could escape to that and um, put on my lingerie and not have to deal with that for the moment. But I mean, it was painful, was but emotionally, I think it might have gotten me through it more than I could have, you know, by not being in the hobby. And I announced on Twitter and I had an amazing, I mean, I didn't think anyone would pay attention, but women from all over would um, send me messages on advice and, you know, help and, I had people solely go to online or just send a random donation amount. And I mean, it's overwhelming because I never thought that many people even knew me or acknowledged me. Or, so it's an eye opener and it was a very hard time. And so, yeah. What about in terms of <clears throat> healthcare? Because you didn't have another job 
So do you have, you know, like private health mm-hmm. coverage or? I do not know. I need to get my LLC and then I could, it would kick in. Um, my doctor is amazing. He is, his wife took me to surgery. They, I've known him since I was 25. You know, I know their family and he knows what I do. He helps as much as he can with grants and, you know, the other doctor, he, he wasn't too fond of me, but you know, it's something I'll be paying on for quite some time. So, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously I don't think they, I think they know that it's not going to be paid off after a while, but like before my surgery, I had to put a few thousand down for radiation. You know, you had to put a good chunk down and that, that was hard and a lot and overwhelming and it pissed me off because this should be legal. I should be protected legally and I should have insurance, you know, and that's nothing wrong with state insurance, but I should have the insurance I want because I don't want to go on state insurance because I feel guilty. I have a good amount of income to where I don't want to go on it. It's a pride thing, I'm sure, but it's, yeah, it's, it sucks. And when the doctor is arguing about anything, you're like, well, it's $300 every time I come here. I'm legit paying that, not insurance. I think you should, you know, the stubbornness in me came out and we did not see eye to eye. So, yeah, but I had to put a good portion down and I got on a lower income scale. And so that is going to help. And then, I mean, I don't think I'll ever pay off all of it because it's, right. it's probably expensive. So. Yeah, without insurance, it's yes. outrageous. It is. I did radiation and two chemo pills, which, thank God, I did the chemo pills, not actual chemo, because I, those for two days, I was sick and I had a, a tiny, tiny bit of hair fall out and I was very emotional. I had my emotions were up and down. It took a lot, but like I said, it's a life lesson and you get stronger through everything you go through so I don't think much can take me down in the next episode on the 2nd of May 1973 the Chilean national football team took on Peru in a crucial World Cup qualifier at the Estadio Nacional in Santiago victory coupled with success in a subsequent playoff meant that only the Soviet Union stood between Chile and a place at the World Cup Finals. That game against a nation whose government had friendly ties with Chilean President Allende would take place in November at the same venue. But Chileans would come to remember 1973 for more important reasons than football. Powerful figures had been plotting against the democratically elected Allende for two years, both at home and in Washington, D.C., at the White House. I would go to a confrontation with him the quicker the better. We're not going to put anything openly on him. We can put things behind the scenes. You're going to kick the hell out of the Chilean. The Chilean football team did qualify for the World Cup, but only because their opponents from the USSR forfeited the match in protest at the CIA-backed military coup that saw President Allende killed and thousands imprisoned, tortured, or killed in the very stadium that was due to hold the match. In this episode, I speak with Professor Kristin Sorensen, an expert on global studies, whose specialties include Chile, about the notorious regime of General Augusto Pinochet and the devastating and lasting impact it has had on the lives of ordinary Chileans.